So, we are week three into our four-week series called At The Movies, where we look at a bunch of the nominated movies for the Academy Awards this year, and we think some questions about them. We ask some questions about them, and we think about how they might relate uh, to us and how we might then live based on what we learn from them. Our film today, though, even though it was nominated for this prestigious award, it prompts us to ask the question, to consider if being famous is the best way to do life, is the ideal, or if more can be achieved through consistent, through deliberate, quiet leadership. So, I wonder when the last time was that you gave something that cost you, something that cost you without expecting anything back in return. Or maybe you faced, I wonder when the last time you faced a decision that could result uh, in you losing something, result in great sacrifice, but you still went ahead because it was the right thing to do. This week, the film we're looking at is called The Post. And if you haven't seen it, we're going to spoil it for you today, uh, unfortunately, but it's based on a true story, so the story's out there anyway, so... Uh, enjoy uh, the movie sometime if you choose to watch that. We'll run through what happened. But in actually choosing a movie to do a sermon on, to choose which movie movie, and then also looking at this movie and thinking, or well, what themes actually stand out? How do I create a sermon about this? has been quite challenging. Now, there's so many different themes that come out in this movie. There's themes about war and peace at the start. Uh, but Michael talked a lot about that last week as he looked at the film Dunkirk. Uh, There's questions about truth. What is truth? How do we pursue truth? How do we share truth? Uh, And there's so this movie's based on journalists at a newspaper, and so their whole quest is to get the truth out there. And this could be a great theme as well. Uh, But Chris preached on that a few weeks ago, and so we won't tackle truth. But truth can be interesting as well, especially when it comes to movies. Truth can be fairly subjective in terms of what you like to see and what you might believe when you see it on a movie. Uh, And I think that's somewhat fair enough, because as any story that is written, that is told, it's going to be biased in some sort of way. That's what stories do. Uh, They change the way we think. They change the way that we see the world. And so our job when we hear a story is to think, is to contemplate, is to reflect. This series, we're looking at this because we want to encourage each of us, to not just consume media blindly, but to ask the questions about the themes, ask the questions about the heroes. Does it align with God's kingdom? Is this the way that we should be trying to live or not? And so we won't focus on truth today. There's other big themes in the movie we could have looked at about gender equality. Uh, That's a big one. Ethical decision-making. How do we do that? Uh, Lots of themes that we could do. But instead, this morning... Uh, We're going to focus on these questions of leadership, questions of trust. And instead of looking at all the backstory, because it is based on a real story, instead of looking at conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of background information, we're just going to take the movie at face value, just going to take the movie as it is and see what does this tell us about ourselves and the world. As we do this, we're focusing on those issues of trust and leadership as we look at these key characters in the film so if you haven't yet seen the movie that's okay or if you have uh, we're going to do a refresher right now it starts with some 
war scenes. So we start off in Vietnam in 1966. There's some soldiers, they're getting dressed up, they're getting prepped, they're getting ready to go out into battle and they actually get ambushed during the night. There's some that are shot, some that are killed and there's a, yeah, a massive ambush, a nighttime fight. And there's this person here typing away on his typewriter. His name is Daniel Ellsberg. He's an academic, is how he calls himself. And he's taking notes afterwards. And he's, really, he's clearly disturbed by what he's seen. He's clearly disturbed by what has happened. And so a few scenes later, he sits solemnly on the plane just staring out the window as he heads back to the States. But it's at this moment when he's just reflecting on what's happened that he's called to the front of the plane. There's a little meeting between the Secretary of Defence and the Chief of Staff. They're having a robust, very robust conversation about the war. And Daniel is invited to input what he's seen because he's been on the ground. He somewhat sheepishly states to him things are about the same. The Secretary of Defence, he's not very happy to hear this because they've invested more lives, they've invested more men, they've invested a lot more money and time uh, and effort into this war and so they want to see things progressing, not just staying the same. And so for him, things are actually getting worse if they're actually just staying the same. Ellsberg then heads back to his seat and the next thing we see, and this is the clinch, uh, after they get back to America, they walk out of the plane the Secretary of Defence, his name is McNamara, and he's talking to a throng of journalists that are standing there to greet him. And he steps up with a big happy smile and a nice open demeanour and he tells the world that the war is progressing really well. Things are going as they should be. That it was all on track and it was, it was perfect. It was happy and, hey, we're going to win this thing. Daniel Ellsberg walks past behind him and he can't believe what he's hearing compared to the conversation that he was a part of on the plane and then what's being presented to the world a few moments later so he decides to take matters into his own hands he uses his security clearance he steals some top secret documents and he makes lots of copies or he makes a copy of lots of these pages and this report later uh, it's called the pentagon report pentagon papers And this report outlines some of the ways that successive governments have been lying to the population, lying to the Congress, lying to the American people, uh, lying to the press. Most specifically, some of the controversial things outlined in the report is the fact that the government knew that they weren't going to win the war for a long time. And one of the main reasons why they stayed was just to save face, to avoid the embarrassment of actually pulling out of something that they'd committed to and told people that they were doing so well in. So, Daniel, he makes lots of copies. He makes copies of this report. And there's lots of films, there's lots of articles about that and is that the right thing to do? Was it treason or not? We're not going to focus on that today because our film today, it jumps forward five years into 1971 where we meet the uh, main character of the film. Her name is Kay Graham. And she's sitting up in bed when we first meet her. She's not able to sleep, and she's got files and files and papers and papers all over her bed. She's stressed. She's cramming for something. She's feeling the pinch. And she's the CEO. She's the publisher of the Washington Post newspaper. And they were planning to go public. They're planning on going public 
very soon. They're taking the, public, uh, the newspaper public on the American Stock Exchange. It's a big deal. They're trying to make tens of millions of dollars for the newspaper. But Kay is living in a man's world. To many, she wasn't really in the right job, not the right role. Her father, who owned the paper before, actually gave it to her husband. But then upon her husband's suicide, she then took leadership of it. And so some people are questioning, is this actually your role? She seems way over her head. She seems like a nice lady, but she's constantly referring to everyone around for advice. She doesn't have a voice for herself, and even in her own boardroom, she doesn't have a voice. She's spoken over by the men that are just sitting around. Next in the movie, the New York Times, they post these uh, the post the articles, the Pentagon Papers. They outline some of these reports, which had been previously smuggled out five years earlier by Daniel Ellsberg. And this causes an eruption across America, across the streets. There's protests. People aren't happy. And like a good journalist, this character, Ben Bradley, uh, who is the managing editor of the paper, He says, hey, we need to get our hands on these papers. So there's sort of a big contrast between these two characters and how they operate. Ben Bradley, he knows what he wants. He goes out to get it. He knows what's right and he's strong and he's ambitious in doing that. Compared to Kay Graham, who's not so much. Later on, the courts then say, uh, New York Times, you can't be publishing this sensitive material. We're going to ban you from doing that for a week at least. And so that starts to build a bit of pressure, a bit of tension, as the rest of the world wants to know what's happening. The government says no, and the papers are sort of stuck in between. What are we going to do? We want to publish, but we're not sure if we should or we could. And so that's the crux of the movie. Careful, uh, thanks to some careful ringing around the Washington Post they manage to get a hold of these papers. They're staring over this box. They can't believe what they've actually seen. They can't believe they've actually found these papers. But it does increase the dilemma that Kay Graham now faces. The pressure is mounting. Do they publish or not? Do they do the job that they're actually meant to be doing or not? And throughout this whole time, Kay, she just seems a bit lost. She's torn, she's stuck in the middle between entertaining her politician friends and running a profitable legal newspaper. She's often calling for advice from both sides, from her politician friends and from people that own the newspaper as well. She moves slowly in all of her ways that she moves, metaphorically as well as actually literally. It's like she's trying to choose where to put each step as she paces around a lot. And and watching that, I can relate to that feeling quite a lot. Which way? I don't know. The water seemed to be rising. There's lots of things happening. Which way do I go? I'm not sure. Well, in the movie, despite this, Kay continues to lead. But I find it interesting the way that she was thrust into this leadership role. Unexpectedly. And there's a few dialogue sections, a few monologue sections where she explains this and she talks about this. One of them, she's talking to her daughter. She's cherishing the memories that she has of being a stay-at-home mother. 
She saw the children grow. She cared for them. She really loved this role. She loved this time and the opportunity to spend time with her family, the joy that that brought her. And then she contrasts this with the pressure that she's now facing, the responsibility that she now holds. But she's not wishing to give that away. She's just recognizing that there's a tension. She has both a love, a deep love for her family and a deep love for the newspaper. The two are interconnected, they're intertwined. The family owns the newspaper and it goes back and forth a little bit. But there's a tension there. There's a pulling in different directions, which will not go away. And this reminds me of the book from Brian Harris. It's called The Tortoise Usually Wins, and it looks at the concept of reluctant leaders. These are people that find themselves in a situation, maybe with uh, competing or conflicting desires, and it describes, I think, many would-be leaders, reluctant leaders. They then lead out of a love for something that they have, for uplifting something, or out of a sense of a burden for something, to step in because no one else seems to be doing so. And this book, The Tortoise Usually Wins, uh, shows how there are many biblical and contemporary examples of Christian leaders who are actually reluctant leaders, quiet leaders, not keen on a big song and dance, not seeking the fame or prestige or the attention of everyone, of lights and cameras, of board members, shareholders, employees, volunteers, uh, but somehow they find themselves prompted to act, called up to lead. And I see Kay as this type of leader. And so we're going to spend some time thinking about that. Because in Harris's book, there are a number of qualities of this quiet leader, this reluctant leader. A number of qualities that are celebrated and a number of images, biblical images, uh, which show this quiet leadership. Conveniently, they all start with the letter S. And so the first one is shepherds. So like a literal shepherd who must care for their flock, find good water, food, nourish their flock, the shepherd must protect their flock of sheep from predators who might steal or destroy individuals or the whole flock. Quiet leaders, like these shepherds, must know those people that are in their care. They must know them by name. They must know what they need. Now, a CEO of a massive company uh, can't obviously do this. But likewise, in my mind, if I think about a shepherd, I don't picture a thousand sheep that are being shepherded by this person. I think it's hard to do. It's a different kind of farming, isn't it? It's a different approach. But this shepherd leader, they know their staff. They know their neighbours, or they know whoever it is that they have influence over and they engage with these people's dreams and desires and this leader makes self-sacrifices for the good of the flock for the good of those followers for the good of the people that are around them to protect them and to nurture them to lift them up so there's a shepherd and then there's a steward type of leader and this includes wise oversight of the resources of the assets that are available could be money could be skills, could be building, could be tools, kitchen facilities, or just something that you know, know-how that your team has or an individual has. And there are lots of parables, uh, there's a few parables that Jesus told about the importance of using those things that we have well, using them for good, using them for growth, not just maintaining, 
not just getting by. The parable of the talents speaks loudly of this, to use the things that we have well so that people might grow. And I see Kay as being really focused on this stewardship approach, from making the company public, trying to gain lots of money uh, so that they can pay all their staff, uh, to expanding their readership. They're wanting to use, she's wanting to make sure they're using their resources as wisely, as profitably as possible. There's a shepherd, there's a steward, and then there's a servant type of quiet leader. And we see this clearly in Jesus washing his disciples' feet, but also in the calling of Abraham, or Abraham before he became Abraham. This calling, he, he later becomes the tribe, uh, the nation of Israel. And the reason for this calling, the purpose of this calling, the outcome of this calling is meant to be for the blessing of the entire world. Not just for the lifting up of this one person. Abraham is not called just so that he could prosper. But it's so that the entire world might know God. Might know something more about God. This means that Israel, that Abraham is meant to live for the rest of the world. Their purpose for existence is for those people around them, rather than just themselves. And we are actually called to that same type of life by Jesus. That we would too take up our cross. We would follow him and care for the people, serve the people around us. Now, a quick note, because sometimes it can get a little bit confusing. A servant leader can be a bit of an oxymoron. How does that actually work? It doesn't mean that a servant leader does all the cooking and the cleaning and the running around and the vacuuming and the tidying up and everything that might possibly be done while those that follow just sit back and get a nice foot massage or clean feet. It's actually the servant leader, how they serve the people around them is by using their leadership skills, their leadership ability that they have. They can look a little bit further. They can see a little bit more about what's going on. They can see a problem and see a solution and make a way to fix that. They call other people out, even people that don't realise they're capable of something, and say, hey, how about you try this? The servant leader, they don't lead out of selfish gain, out of building themselves up, but they lead for the blessing of others. So, these three images can sometimes get a little bit murky in how they interact with each other, because it can be hard to be a shepherd and nurturing and protecting and caring for a flock while being a steward if someone is wasting resources and making bad decisions. How do you care and love and and do all that at the same time? Sometimes it can be tricky, but I think there are three images that are worthwhile holding on to. So, why all this talk about reluctant leaders? Well, for a good portion of us, I include myself, that's how leadership finds us. We're not born with a sense that people are going to follow me. I have something to offer. Come on, people, jump on the train. But we see a need. They see a need and they care enough to do something about it. And sometimes people follow. Importantly, what I want to stress here is that it's a legitimate type of leadership. Kay, in the movie, didn't plan on being the first female CEO newspaper editor, uh, publisher first CEO, uh, women, female, major American newspaper publisher. It was a big deal. 
She didn't even see herself, oh, and didn't even consider being CEO as an option. It wasn't on the table at all. She was not fussed one bit, she says, when the paper got passed from her father onto her husband. It seemed natural. It seemed good. It made sense, she said. That was the way it was going to go. But somehow leadership found her, and then she had a choice. She had a choice to accept that leadership or not. What is striking to me is how we see her grow, how we see her own uh, person grow throughout this movie. The, deep, the big decision needs to be made. Do they publish the papers or not? And I was actually surprisingly engrossed and enjoyed the movie uh, as this drama built, as I was watching. Pleasantly surprised. Uh, even the second time I watched it through, it was still a good movie to watch. I enjoyed it because the stakes are high. The pressure is real. The board members on one side don't want anyone to go to jail because the courts are having a lot of issues with what's going on. The board members are trying to be responsible in how they govern. The employees, the journalists are saying, well, this is our job to actually get this news out there. We've got to do this. If you don't let us, well, then what's the point in being here? We'll quit if we can't do our job. And so Kay is stuck in the middle of these two competing valid arguments. But both sides let her make the call. Mrs. Graham says, Ben Ben Bradley at one point, what are you going to do? It's your call. It's your decision. You are the leader. And then we see towards the end of the movie, she decides to publish. She's on a conference call and she even surprises herself with a decision. She's pleasantly surprised. She's made the decision and, okay, well, that's the way we're going to do. Yes, let's do it. She hangs up. She goes back to her party. After making this decision, Ben Bradley is talking to his wife and he's talking about how brave he has been in this whole process, how brave he's been in pushing to publish. And his wife offers some perspective and says, what have you got to lose? My husband? Well, he says, my job, my reputation. She says, oh, please. We both know that this will do nothing but burnish your reputation. You can always find another job. Yes, you are very brave. But Kay is in a position she never thought she'd be in, a position many people don't think she should have. When you're told time and time again that you're not good enough, that your opinion doesn't matter as much, when they don't just look past you, when to them you're not even there, when that's been your reality for so long, it's hard not to let yourself think that it's true. So to make this decision to risk your fortune and the company that's been her entire life, well, I think that's brave, says Ben's wife. I think Kay was a reluctant leader, but that, didn't, that doesn't mean she wasn't up for the job. She just had to grow into it. And there's a picture in the Bible uh, that would talk about this sacrifice and talk about putting it all on the line Talk about this competing love that we have. So she had a love for family, a love for the paper, and tried to work out, well, how do we do this? How, how do we serve both of these? And it's 1 John 3.16, where this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
this picture then is the ultimate, it's the ideal of the shepherd and the servant type images of quiet leadership. To quietly go around looking for, acting in areas where we can risk something of ourselves for the good of someone else. And this is in stark contrast to the distrust that the Washington Post in the movie, the newspaper, now holds of the government. The expectation that the country's leadership is trying to trick the whole country, the whole world, in terms of what's actually happening. And the newspaper takes it upon themselves, well, this is our job now to catch them out, to keep them honest. Throughout the family's course, the last three days, uh, we talked about the idea that lying leads to mistrust. And I think it's hard to lead when the people around you don't trust you. Jesus' leadership, it makes it plain that we are on the same side. We're on the same team. The leader is leading for the sake of their followers, for their constituents, for their citizens, for their employees, for their team members, for their neighbours, whoever it is uh, that we're leading. So we hear lots and lots about loving, but I find it still hard to actually do. We ask, well, what's in it for me? If we don't say that out loud, then it might come in our minds. What's in it for me? Or we question whether someone deserves something or not. Do they really deserve that praise, that accolade? Do they really deserve attention? Do they really deserve financial support, whatever it is? And I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H, so all of humanity, in general, than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. That was pretty challenging for me uh, because Jesus Christ asks his followers to love people in particular. To see those people that are in prison, that are hungry, that are abandoned, that are downtrodden, and to step in with love, to step in with sacrifice. To see people who are having a bad day and to step into conversation with them. To see people who are having health problems and to see how we might be of assistance. Was Kay Graham, was Ben Bradley Christian in the movie? I have no idea. The movie makes no mention of it. They probably were not motivated by love for Christ in the decisions that they were making to disseminate truth. They were probably not motivated by growing God's kingdom. But I think when we look at the risks that they take, the risks that these leaders were willing to go through, potential of prison, potential of losing a whole lot, just so this story could be told, we see echoes of how we as followers of Christ should live. As I'm watching this movie, I'm wondering, well, what cause, what case would I be willing to go to prison for? To what ends uh, would I be willing to sacrifice something for? What cause would you be willing to go to prison for? What would you be willing to put it all on the line for? As I was reflecting again on the family's course, 
we talked about this uh, progression from independence that people need to go through. We start off dependent as we're a little, little baby and we move to counter-dependence where we're actually just pushing against every established norm that we can find. That's typically the teenage life. And for me, that was when I was asking lots of questions. Why is there war? Why is there poverty? Why is there famine? Why? Come on, world, why is it so terrible? What's going on? And so for me, that issue of counter-dependence, pushing against all of that, I probably would have been willing to go to jail for a whole bunch of things, put it all on the line. But then as my independence grows, and I notice and reflect on this, as I grow a family, as I have a house, as I own more and more things, it gets harder and harder and harder to actually put it on the line. I really appreciated from the family's course that independence wasn't the final endpoint of our journey. We should actually be moving to interdependence. And I think this perfectly sums up how we are called to live. Where it's not just about me, but if someone else is struggling, we can interdependently lift them up. And then when I'm struggling, they can do the same for me. I think this is the essence of mission. To go out to offer something of what we have, be that a story, a good story, or be it food or a hug, to be prayer or some water, shelter, to do something which changes the world without expecting reward, without expecting accolades, without expecting fancy stars in the pavement. The bright and flashy lights of Hollywood, they can sometimes give us the idea, the impression, that only those that are celebrated in this way, bright, flashy lights, only those people are the worthy people. The only way to be considered a leader is to be the bold and know exactly what you want, Ben Bradley type of guy. I'm going to go and solve the problem, save the world. But Jesus shows that we all have the potential to be world changers. As when love is given sacrificially for the good of others, when risks are taken, not just for self-gratification, because it's the right thing to do, well, that's when we love, and that's when we grow, and those people around us grow as well. Kay Graham, in continuing as the quiet leader towards the end of the movie, they're leaving the courtroom. There's been a positive decision for the newspapers. They're allowed to publish. They don't have to go to jail. And the people around her are saying, go, say something. Go, tell them what's happened. Share this good news, this momentous win and she quietly states no i think enough has already been said instead she leaves the courtroom out the side door and she's going down the steps and there's this group of women who are standing around she's walking through and they're looking to her and they know that she is a leader even though she's not on the tv cameras even though there is no flashing lights she is a leader and I've been coming more and more aware that we all have scopes of influence. That God has made us all to be able to go out and to make a difference. I like this quote. Kay concludes at the end, Oh well, we don't always get it right. We're not always perfect. But I think if we just keep on it, that's the job, isn't it? That's the conviction of a quiet leader through plodding, along like a tortoise, keeping on it, hoping and knowing that the steps that we take might change the world for the better. 
And in one of my favourite scenes of the movie, Kay strikes this crossed-armed, contented pose as she's looking at all the other newspapers that have followed her lead, says Ben Bradley. She's happy, she's proud. She's looking at all the things that she has achieved. Ben Bradley, this strong personality, glances sideways, sees the pose that she is making and assumes the same. He's on board. This strong go get him type guy is following this quiet leader. He's a part of the team. And it's a bit of an upside down scenario as to how the world tells us things should work. But Jesus has a lot of these. He tells us to think carefully about the how the world tells us to live. And this example of quiet, reluctant type leadership is a good example of that. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you have made us for a purpose. We don't always understand what that is. We don't always have a clear picture of where it might lead. But God, we choose to trust you and trust your way. So God, if there are things that we are holding on to too tightly, if there are things or ways that we can be more generous, that we can give sacrificially, we can serve those around us in leadership or in other ways, God, help us to know, help us to see, help us to loosen the grip on those things. Thank you for stories that encourage us to do that. Thank you for ways that people have served us, help us to go and do the same. To put it on the line, just as you did for us.